Martha Van Houten, and each week I'm here with Brian Buck, lead pastor at Oaks Parish, to go a little deeper into Sunday sermon and to keep the conversation going throughout the week as we journey together in learning what it means to abide in Christ for the renewal of all things. So let's dive in. Welcome back to the Oaks Parish Podcast. Hope everyone had an enjoyable and a meaningful Thanksgiving. We have a special episode planned today. It's a Q&A, or as some people like to call it, AMA, I think, which stands for Ask Me Anything. We've been receiving your questions for the past five weeks since we started this series in 1 Samuel, and today we get to respond to some of those. Brian, are you ready for this? I'm kind of ready. Uh, this feels like I'm going through my ordination trials again. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting peppered with all sorts of questions from multiple directions. This is keeping me on my toes. That's good. That's good. Um, hopefully a little more casual setting, though. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, before we get started, I do want to highlight what you'll find on the podcast starting next week. We have done a first season of this podcast, and now Brian and I will be pausing our conversations here for just a brief time during the season of Advent, because starting next Monday, December 4th, we're releasing an Oaks Parish Advent Reflection Guide titled, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. As we anticipate the celebration of the arrival of the Christ child, we're bringing to you a devotional resource of scripture reflection questions, and prayer three times a week from December 4th through January 5th. So that's the whole season of Ad- of Advent uh, through the start of Epiphany. And you can find it all right here, wherever you listen to the podcast. The reflections are anywhere from eight minutes to 18 minutes. You can easily listen during your morning or your afternoon commute uh, while you're running, while you're making dinner, or with your family around the dinner table. And I'm really excited about this because the scripture we'll be reflecting on just so profoundly sets the stage for the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, revealing to us all the expectations of the people of God since the beginning, all the ways that God promised a relationship with them, and how he made good on his promises, starting with the birth of his son. So don't forget to come back here next Monday for the first week of Advent. And you'll find the first three episodes released in our new resource, Come Thou Long Expected, Jesus. All right, we're just going to jump right in because we have a lot to get to. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get to all of them. So if you don't hear yours and you're still very curious, uh, feel free to reach out to Brian and you can grab coffee and have a conversation together about your question. He would love to do that with you. So let's begin with a question about the scope of Israel that we see in the Old Testament. In scripture from the book of Judges to Samuel, Israel transitions from ruling judges to kings. So the question is, why did this transition have very mixed results? And what do you think God was teaching Israel and us today? Yeah, as I thought about this question, there were three facets that came to mind, one being sociological Uh, the second political, and the third theological. So maybe we can just kind of take those three uh, in three steps, starting with the sociological. First, I think there are very ordinary sociological dimensions at play in the transition that we see in history uh, and in the world today. In ancient Israel, as we find their history unfolding in the books of Exodus, 
Joshua, Judges, and 1 Samuel. Israel is transitioning from slavery, then they become a nomadic people, and then they're a tribal people living in the promised land, and eventually they become a monarchy. Those are profound shifts, sociological, that are not easy to make. We're talking about thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, maybe we can look back at world history, to the history of Europe, for example, uh, and point to the transition from a feudalistic society to a monarchy. That wasn't an easy transition. Uh, maybe uh, a modern example that would be uh, related here would be the government of, of Af Afghanistan. Um, that government has gone from a monarchy to a republic. Uh, now it's back to a theocracy under the Taliban. Uh, and because judges in ancient Israel were, quote unquote, warlord leaders, I would say that a Taliban theocracy is the kind of shift that Israel is making in 1 Samuel, although their shift has nothing to do with Islam or Sharia law. They're obviously Jewish following the law given to Moses. But it, it's that kind of shift where they're shifting from being a tribal people to a monarchy, not an easy shift. Yeah, that's a lot of change and adaptation for a community people, a community of people or a nation to go through. I think we can only kind of imagine the identity shifts or identity crises that you'd probably experience with so much alteration in your society. And you're saying that these are sort of natural sociological shifts that we've seen other people groups and nations undergo throughout history so that the response was a transition from judges to kings sometimes i think and oddly enough we can over spiritualize the bible <laughs> the mm -hmm. bible's recording sociological events and those are sometimes very complex yeah so what else was at play what's number two number two would be the political aspect of what was happening within Israel. Uh, politically speaking, the transition from judges to kings uh, teaches us the words of Psalm 146. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals, in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. And on that very day, their plans perish. I remember when Trump was elected back in 2016, many of my friends in Portland thought the world and the church were falling apart. And then in 2020, when Biden was elected, my friends that lived in other parts of the country thought the world and the church were falling apart. And the book of Judges says that this sort of reaction is complete nonsense <laughs> because we already have a king and that king, King Jesus, is ruling over the cosmos and not just America. So I think that in a timely way, um, as we're following Israel's history from judges to kings, it's preparing us for yet another complex election cycle. Yeah, that really places perspective on our reactions to any individual political figure or even movement. We no doubt feel the ups and downs of um, any given decision or election or ruling from the courts and whatnot. But the question becomes, how do we keep ourselves in check against despair or against rejoicing in humans rather than in the work that God is doing in his kingdom? So that's really thoughtful. Now, I know you like to respond in threes. So what's the final piece here? The final piece of the triad. Theologically speaking, 
and I think this is really the ultimate point, uh, this transition from uh, judges to a monarchy in Israel, it reveals to us the gospel. Dane Orton in the book, his book, Deeper, he speaks of the role of despair in our salvation. And he writes, as you despair of yourself, agonizing over the desolation wrought by your failures, your weakness, your inadequacies, let that despair take you way down deep into honesty with yourself. For there you will find a friend, the living Lord Jesus himself, who will startle and surprise you with his gentle goodness as you leave self behind in repentance and bank on him afresh in faith. I love that. That at the very bottom of the pit of despair, that's where Jesus lives. That's where he delights to bring us salvation. When all of the faculties and the assets of self have failed us, then we are able to see clearly Christ and Christ alone. So the era of judges teaches us of our ongoing need for God and him alone. Dark days can certainly be crushing. Uh, good times, though, are also fleeting. But the invitation here is to look to God alone for life and salvation. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great question and gives us all quite a bit to reflect on. In what ways are we reaching maybe for our own solutions or relying on our own assets or our own hope? And how does that leave us with even less hope in the end than the hope we have in God alone? So thank you. Let's transition a bit. This next question takes us back to the time of Eli and Samuel. The question is, recently in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we saw the power of God's holiness reflected in the Ark of the Covenant. Some in Christendom claim that there exist today shrines and relics of similar power. How should we think about this in our own current era? This is a great question, um, especially if you've come across uh, this sort of discussion in the church. You know, the leading theologians of the Reformation were pretty reactionary about reverence shown to particular places of worship, icons, and relics. And I think that that reactionary posture kind of carries through uh, into the church today. Uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our guiding theological document at Oaks Parish, uh, this would be an example of how you can see this. In chapter 21.6, it says, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed, but God is to be worshiped everywhere. Okay, uh, no doubt that that's true. God is worshiped everywhere. Uh, in their own day, the reformers were trying to correct abuses related to places, icons, and relics. But I wonder now, looking back, if they ended up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There is a sense that when you break down the secular and the sacred, you can reach a point where nothing feels sacred anymore and everything feels secular. There is no more holy ground, so to speak. On last week's podcast, I noted that one of the marks of flourishing in exile is transcendence, recapturing uh, that transcendent 
perspective of God in the church, this awe-inspiring worship of God. And here in Portland, um, we're witnessing a number of church buildings uh, being raised, uh, the land being sold to developers. And when that happens, we're actually losing signs in the landscape that point to another world. And without this kind of sacred space, we just become ground into the pragmatic dust of the imminent. So do I think we should be praying to golden images of Mary? And the answer is no. But I sense that we've swung the pendulum too far. And part of the renewal in our society that we need is renewing sacred aesthetics in the church. Do you have an imagination for what the renewal of a sacred aesthetic in the church might look like, or for those who do have an imagination for it, like what, what may be considered as some important boundaries maybe in the discussion? Well, you know, when I was thinking about this question this week and and trying to think through it through the lens of the gospel going to every tribe and tongue, I don't think that there is just one way Hmm. or there's one aesthetic or there's one way to go about it. Um, I have friends that, are part of uh, non-denominational type churches that uh, their liturgy doesn't really look like our liturgy. But if you were to visit there on a Sunday morning, um, you would sense the holy presence of God pervasive in worship. Uh, You come to Oaks Parish, we walk through a holy sacred liturgy and we do that intentionally. And in doing that, we find ourselves in the Holy Spirit. So I don't think that there's just one aesthetic or one way, um, but I feel like that uh, a sense that that pursuing the transcendent, um, recapturing that awe-inspiring worship of God is key to the renewal that we need to see in the church today. All right. Our next question is also about the Ark of the Covenant, particularly Israel's decision to carry it out into battle. And we talked extensively a couple weeks ago about the ramifications of that decision for Israel to ultimately use God for their own purposes. So the question here is, are there common signs that you see when someone is putting their will before God's? And what are your suggestions for discerning God's will in your life for decisions, both big and small? Another thought-provoking question. And if you're listening to this right now, I would invite you to consider the answer to this question for yourself. When you put your will before God, what does that look like? How does that unfold in your own life? And I think it's often dependent upon our story, upon our personality. My personality lends itself to action, to getting things done, uh, to checking off the list, Uh, moving on to the next thing. There's kind of a a dopamine effect. And so for me personally, I have to be intentional to not be impulsive. So the gospel for me is to slow down, to abide with God, to seek the leadership of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 12, 2, a verse that some of us know well, the apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, as I've said before, discipleship with Jesus could be defined as simply 
a matter of paying attention. And I think this is where a tool that we commonly go to here at Oaks Parish is valuable called the learning circle. And uh, we'll include a link uh, to that image in the show notes. But the learning circle tells us that, that we live our life in Kronos time, according to our calendar. But then God calls us into Kairos time. That's time eternal. And so as we give ourselves to the formative rhythms of faith, these things that renew our mind, as Paul described it, Sunday liturgy, prayer, scripture, meditation, we find that God leads us in matters both big and small. And then we have the opportunity in the church to bring others into the conversation to ensure that we're not just hearing things or making things up. And and this is the beauty of being in the church and going through that process of discernment, whether it's something minor, something major, um, ultimately uh, we hear from God and we grow in a new direction. I really appreciate how you spoke about how you see that playing out personally and how the gospel speaks to you specifically, because really so much of it comes down to my will or yours, Lord. And that's very personal to each of us. So just as you speak about the drive to activate and make decisions, I imagine that others like myself face the opposite problem, like the crushing pressure of indecision, or as I often heard uh, in my growing up years, the paralysis of analysis, Yeah, <laughs> perhaps that 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 comes from a place of perfectionism or another type of idolatry or really just an a- attempt to exert exert our own uh, control and power over the situation. But if we have an openness and an attentiveness to God breaking us out of our own chronological time and our space and pulling us into Kairos time, that's a really beautiful framework for how we should be led. I think that's actually a great segue into our next question as we think about our attentiveness to God at work in our lives and in the world around us. So the next question asks, what does it mean to live a sacramental life? And I think we've frequently alluded to that over the past several weeks. So if you would uh, talk more about that and perhaps offer some examples. Yeah, I'll probably throw that around a little bit um, ever so mysteriously. Maybe you've seen the film Contact uh, starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. Foster plays a character named Ellie. Uh, McConaughey plays a character named Palmer. Ellie is an interstellar radio scientist who makes radio contact with an alien species. She's a woman of science, formulas. She's also a staunch atheist. Palmer, on the other hand, is a minister who serves as an advisor to the president. And throughout the film, he forges this relationship with Foster. He invites um, the character Ellie to faith into a life of trusting in things unseen, uh, something that as a scientist, Ellie rejects until the very end of the film. Uh, Ellie figures out that the alien has sent engineering blueprints for a portal that will enable one person to travel to their world. And she becomes that person. And upon arrival, uh, a reality that cannot be measured or calculated a world beyond words and comprehension is observed by her. And when asked what she sees, Ellie replies, some celestial event, no, 
no words, no words to describe it. Poetry. They should have sent a poet. Uh, I did that no justice. You can watch the film. Jodie Foster does it much better. But when we speak of a sacramental life, this is what we mean. As we think about what is actually happening during communion, for example, it is a mystery. Theologically, we speak of our union with Christ as a reality given to us in the gospel. But what does that mean? Paul uses phrases like, our life is hidden in Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Who can put into words what this means or what Jesus is describing when he says, abide in me and I in you? Now, the reformers were so wonderful in answering the question, what do we believe? But I think it's the contemplative writers of the church that are so poignant in answering the question, how do we now live? No words to describe it. And so the contemplative writers of church history, they are the poets. At the risk of breaking this really profound moment in response, because this is an Ask Me Anything episode, I first want to know, is that how you and Amanda came to name your first daughter, Ellie, from this movie? <laughs> it is not. It okay. is not. Fair, fair question, though. <laughs> yes, fair question. Fair question. We got uh, Ellie's name out of a baby book that we bought at a coffee shop. There you go. Okay. Not so profound. <laughs> not so profound. Just as just as profound as naming her after a Jodie Foster character, though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of serious follow-ups to that, though, because there were a lot of great things in there. First, you speak of the mystery of communion. And I think it's important that we grasp that because even if we have an understanding of God and his work, we, we still leave room for mystery for the things we cannot fully know yet. But as we do come together at the table every single week, can you say a little bit more about the role that communion plays in our liturgy? Yeah, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 27 uh, speaks to this, I think, in a profound way, maybe in a way that offers some clarity, but also invites us into further mystery. Uh, there, I think we could summarize that communion is the holy crescendo to the whole service, to all of the liturgy. You know, you think about it, Jesus made the decision to signify his love for us and seal it to us in a very ordinary way, a meal. Consider what happens when you attend dinner at someone's home. You know, you arrive, you take your coat off, you catch up for a while, you maybe have a drink or an appetizer, and then finally you sit down to enjoy the meal together. Dinner is the main event. So maybe let's not overthink this theologically. We arrive at the home of Christ, his body, the church. We begin the liturgy. We settle in. We have a conversation with him through scripture, through prayer, through giving our tithes and offerings, greeting one another in the passing of the peace, hearing from him through the sermon, singing songs together in the midst of his presence. And then the crescendo of the whole thing. We sit down for the meal. From the Passover of the Old Testament to the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation, Christ delights to celebrate with us through food and drink. In a word, the Lord's Supper is the center point for abiding with Christ in our life. Christ gathers with his brothers and sisters around his table, and it's a beautiful picture. 
Yeah, that is beautiful. Thank you. As a second follow-up then, you mentioned the contemplative writers being the ones who illuminate for us in their own poetic way. How do we now live? And you've been sharing about several of them recently and the insights you sort of gathered from them. So if someone was to begin wading into the offerings of some of these contemplative writers, where would you recommend that they would begin? Or what do they have to offer? Well, perhaps more than recommending books to read, which is always our Western (laughs) perspective, just give me the book to read so I can download the information. I like to recommend practice, specifically the practice of Christ-centered meditation. As part of your devotional rhythm, I invite you to take 10 or 20 minutes each day to read scripture and then just to sit quietly with Christ. Maybe you enter into that time reflecting on a particular verse that you read or repeating Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Um, I do this often. I will say that whole phrase over and over again, dropping words along the way, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still be. And when you enter into this space with Christ, your mind will be assaulted (laughs) with a barrage of thoughts, distractions, things on your to-do list. So maybe pick a word like rest or abide. Maybe it's a word that you recount from the scripture you just read to help you return to his presence. And all those times of returning over the, that 10 or 20 minute period are moments for Christ to receive you. Here's what you'll find. There will be moments later in the day. Maybe it's when you're bored. Maybe it's in the midst of a stressful conversation. Maybe it's simply on a walk in the neighborhood. And you'll find yourself returning to the presence of Christ, the same experience that you had when you were still earlier in the day. And with practice, you begin to notice that he is always with you, upholding the universe, loving you in every moment. So perhaps practice is more valuable than reading, but if you do wanna get started with some contemplative authors or some help with Christian meditation, we'll include the following titles in the show notes. Uh, First, a book called Christian Meditation by James Finley. Um, That speaks practically to the practice of meditation. Uh, James Finley is a poet, and I love how he describes life with Christ. Uh, Henry Nouwen, Life of the Beloved, is a great book. Martha, I think you read this book last year. It's just kind of a great starting point uh, that describes our self-understanding in Christ in poetic terms. Uh, My mentor a couple of years ago gave me the book A Year with Thomas Merton which has 365 small readings that you can just read, meditate on. Then another one of my favorites is a book called The Sacrament of the Present Moment by Jean-Pierre de Cassade. Uh, That really speaks to to how do we abide with Christ uh, in the daily, in every moment. Thank you for those reading recommendations, things we can add to our list, but also just the understanding of that practice, such a simple practice, but something we can find ourselves so far away from 
And so bringing us back to a place of quietness and rest before God, before his word, without agenda or motivation or achievement, just allowing ourselves to be loved and to know God in a more intimate way, I think is really profound and a great note to end on. I feel like at some point I reached a dry place in my prayer life with God. And I think reflecting back, the reason for that was that I was kind of constantly just coming to God with my prayer list, asking him to handle things and to do things, which is great. We've been talking about that with, uh, with Israel's history in the days of Samuel. But in another way, there's something incredibly invigorating about just being with Christ. It's like being with your spouse. I mean, when I spend time with Amanda, I'm not constantly asking her to do things. I'm just enjoying her presence, enjoying her talking to me and me talking to her and us reflecting on things together. I think such as our marriage with Christ and the benefit of Christian meditation. Well, this has been a really rich conversation. Thank you again for everyone's willingness to share their questions and their curiosities. Thank you for responding, Brian, with so much to chew on and to continue pondering. I'm really grateful for this platform and ability and opportunity to dig a little deeper. And I'm looking forward to the next chapter when we pick this back up in the new year. So as always, thank you for listening and participating in the conversation. Don't forget to tune in here again, starting next Monday for the start of our Advent podcast. Come thou long expected Jesus. Have a great week and we'll talk more soon.